this is William Hong, and you're listening to the Society Show. Merry Christmas, Puerto. You'll want to focus on the neglected food groups, such as the whipped group, the congealed group, and the chocolate-tastic. Hey now. Broadcasting live to tape across the nation and the world from the new Society Theater in the city built on an ancient tech bro burial ground, Seattle, Washington. podcast for a world gone mad this is the society show and now your host a man with a spotty attendance record christian patterson let's go this is the society show my name is christian today i am joined by eric nelson Eric is a duckmonger in New York, and he has also written for the LA Review of Books, and he has also he also hosts a podcast called the Untitled Charles Grodin Podcast. Eric, welcome to the show. I actually have a weapon. Thanks, Christian. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm also I'm, I'm terrified. Was not kind of was pretty depressed reading about the different things we we'll talking today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we get to that, I, I do have a little quiz. Um, but, you know, for the audience, um, we are going to be talking about human experimentation, medical experimentation, stuff like that. Um, but first. But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. Like I said, I do have a quiz. So are you ready for that? I'm ready. Lay on. Okay, so before we start, I have to ask, um, last or er, yeah, I'd say last week now, um, the Burning Crusade, the expansion to World of Warcraft was released, um, for the first time since, like, 2007, it was not playable except on, like, private servers, so, have you ever played World of Warcraft or know anything about it? I know nothing about it. Okay, perfect. And also, have you ever gone on a religious pilgrimage? Oh, I haven't. Uh, the closest I did was I stayed at a, a Catholic worker farm for an alternate spring break in West Virginia. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty fun, but uh, thankfully uh, you're not familiar with these things because I think that'll make the quiz more fun. Basically, I will name a location... And you have to guess whether it's a location in the WoW expansion, the Burning Crusade, or if it's a real-life religious pilgrimage site. Oh, okay. All right. Let's do it. I feel confident. All right. Number one, Mount Nebo. N-E-B-O. Mount Nebo. I'm going to say World of Warcraft. That is incorrect. (laughs) Yeah, that is the place where Moses was granted a view of the promised land and subsequently died. Okay, all right, all right. I'll just get a (laughs) war. Okay, number two. 
Temple of Telhamit. That's World of Warcraft. Oh, wait, wait. That Temple is... Wait, 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 wait. Say it again. Say, say the question again. Sorry. Temple of Telhamit. That's World of Warcraft. That is correct. It is a Draenei stronghold on Hellfire Peninsula. All right, one for one. Number three, Data Barbar. Oh, sorry, I'm reading it wrong. Data Darbar. Religious pilgrimage site? That is correct. It is one of the most sacred shines for the Sufi sect of Islam. Cool. All right. And that is, so I guess those were three. So number four, Hill of Crosses. Tricky. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with religious pilgrimage. That is... Correct. It is a hill covered in crosses, crucifixes, effigies, um, and it's a common site for pilgrimage for Lithuanian Catholics. It's in Lithuania. So is that a separate church, uh, or is that Roman Catholics in Lithuania, or is that separate, like uh, like how there's an Eastern Orthodox Catholic? No? I'm not really sure. I don't think... Well, I could pull up a religion in Lithuania. Let's see. I'm just curious. So, it seems like uh, the country is overwhelmingly Christian, 93%, but only 23% of those are Catholic. Oh, wow, okay. And the rest are either Eastern Orthodox or Lutheran. Lutheran? <laughs> yes. There's some others, too, but that covers most of it. Uh, so, let's see. The, number five. Sanctum of the Stars. World of Warcraft? That is correct. That is a small outpost for the Scryer faction in southern Shadow Moon Valley. Oh man, I'm such. I, I was gonna say I feel so smart, at least with <laughs> four out of five. <laughs> yes. So number six, Zabrajin. Zabrajin. Um. Religious pilgrimage? That is incorrect. It is a troll settlement in Zangar Marsh, Zabrajin. Okay. <laughs> in number seven, Cave of the Patriarchs. Cave of the Patriarchs. That's got to be World of Warcraft. That is incorrect. According to the Abrahamic religions, the cave and the adjoining field were purchased by Abraham as a burial plot. And finally, number eight. The Botanica. Oh, that's a religious pilgrimage. That is incorrect. 
It is a level 70 dungeon in World of Warcraft. Yeah, this is really like the pride before the fall. <laughs> so how much did you end up with? Was that five out of eight? Uh, I think I got like four out of eight, honestly. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll know when I listen back. I'm just terrible at keeping score in the oh, meantime. I stopped keeping score after like the, the second incorrect. Well, yeah. So, I admit it. So, I mean, you did okay. Decent. I mean, I think that was a hard quiz, but. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> But I, I also uh, like that quiz because they're not exactly trick questions either. No, not really. I mean, you'd have to even... It, the odds of, like, knowing really both of those really well is, is pretty... I don't know. What's the uh, the, Venn, the Venn diagram? Sorry. Oh, yeah, Venn diagram, if people don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so we are going to get into talking about human experimentation, but uh, before we get into that, is there anything you want to say while you're on the show that's unrelated, I suppose? Oh, gosh. No, I really, I can't think of, I can't think of too much. Um, eat more vegetables, I guess would be my advice. And, gu- and guys, if you're single, buy a hand towel for your bathroom. <laughs> yes. Don't just use this just like a bar of soap. Not even just for if you think you're going to have somebody over this summer, but for yourself. Yeah, and while we're going off of that, I'll just add uh, posture check. Check your posture. Yeah, check your posture. Yeah, oh, and drink water. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I worked outside all day yesterday, and today it was about 90 degrees. Now, I was under a tent, but I was just chugging water and Gatorade all day. Although water is better for Gatorade not only quenches your thirst better, it tastes better too, idiot. You're, you're, you're drinking the wrong water. Gatorade. H2O. Gatorade. H2O. Water sucks. It really, really sucks. Water sucks. No, it hand. really, really sucks. You don't mean it. You're bad people. Yeah, might as well have water. Yeah, I know. I became a convert to <laughs> seltzer. Uh, about a year and a half ago, and I was like, oh, shit. I'm a uh, tap water purist. Ooh. <laughs> yes. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Um, so when it comes to human experimentation, though, um, I do think we should kind of, like, start at the beginning of time um, and and kind of move forward. And the first thing I guess I want to talk about, we didn't really prep for this very much, but just thinking about the mass amount of human medical experimentation that existed probably before any writing system even existed. And like, you know, I can totally imagine very primitive societies like the mesopotamia or whatever uh doing really rudimentary type of medical uh type stuff uh to get a better sense of the world around them we don't have any documentation of that but before we get into stuff we do have documentation about what do you think about um the possibility of really primitive uh experimentation like that i think it's definitely 
technically possible. I mean, there's always, if something happens, you know, let's say that um, you're a hunter-gatherer and you're running, you know, you're running after prey and you trip over, so something happens like where you trip over a fallen tree trunk or something and you break a bone. Back then, would you know what had happened? Probably not. And, you know, sooner or later, you know, as as you go from hunter, you know, hunter, hunting, gathering into the agricultural revolution and then into people who don't have to just hunt for their food or do nothing but tend the soil all day, sun up the sun down, you know, all year, then you do have people who are going to be able to have the time and really start to think of, oh, why is this this? And then you'll start, and then you would probably start to see different forms of rudimentary experimentation based off that human curiosity. That's Yeah, I also think about, like, ancient Aztecs or um, people native to the Americas, um, how Aztecs would do those, like, sacrificial rituals. I don't like to bring it up a lot because it's used to demonize them so much, but, like, I just think they have to have a pretty decent uh, knowledge of uh biology to know that like for example like in ancient greece they thought that um your that your thoughts came from your heart because your heart was beating like and just as an idea of like how our medical perception and perception of the mind has changed over time but like just the idea that they were like pulling out people's hearts and um doing different things with their bodies entails like a intimate knowledge of like in- interior bodily function right i mean i can remember taking a class if you fast forward you know, just for a second based on that thought to i can remember taking a class as an undergrad called psychohistory and the only thing that i really remember from from this class was how apparently you had people in uh, europe in the 1700s who thought that if you have a bowel movement that's a different color then that's evil, you know, that's evil leaving you. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, it also reminds me, this is unrelated, but um, just another funny thing is how, like, uh, back in ancient Greece, they believed that... Uh, if a woman gets pregnant, then it's a composite of every man who's had sex with her. So they'd have like <laughs> they'd have like the smartest guy and like the the strongest guy all have sex with her and think the kid will have those features as well. Wow, how far we've come. <laughs> um, well, we can fast forward to uh, I guess like the Roman era now. Um, because we that's where we do have our first like written documents about human experimentation from Aulus Cornelius Celsius um very little's known about his life we don't know his birth name we don't know where he lived exactly or what time even um but people can kind of figure out from context clues. For example, we uh, he made references to living during 
Augustus was emperor. So he was living it like around the fall of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire, that very like historically rich time frame. Right. There was a lot more documentation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Romans were very extensive documenters. And so Celsus wrote a text called De Medicina, which was a medical text. Uh, and it's people believe that it's the first volume of a larger encyclopedia, but the rest of it has been lost to time. And in the preface, he addresses human experimentation, and he claims that the Greek physicians Herophilus and Erasistratus practice live human dissection. So I'm just going to read the passage from this intro, and this is basically, as far as I could tell, the extent of him talking about it. He actually doesn't mention it that much, but he writes, quote, it becomes necessary to lay open the bodies of the dead and to scrutinize their viscera and intestines. They hold that Herophilus and Erasistratus did this in the best way by far, when they had laid open men whilst alive, criminals received out of prison from the kings, and while these were still breathing, observe parts which beforehand nature had concealed. Uh, so he basically is saying not only do they do live human experimentations, but that's actually the superior way to do medical experiments. So uh, what do you think about that? Well, you know, the, the one thing that, that popped out for me in that passage was, well, there's two things that, that come to mind. One is that, how do we know this is, well, the first thing is, I'm thinking, how do we know this is necessarily true, what he's claiming? But if he's saying, if what he's saying is, is correct, that the fact that they use criminals received out of prison from the king, that's, I mean, that's the basis of a lot of what happened in the United States years later. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I do want to highlight about the validity of what he's saying is the two physicians he's talking about lived, I think, like two to three hundred years before Celsus did. And so if it's true what he's saying, then uh, that would kind of imply that it was pretty a widespread practice with um, transmitted knowledge about it. Or, you know, maybe he is making it up, or it's it's kind of mythologized on some level, because it is several hundred years removed, but that adds uh, some intrigue to it. I mean, there, you know, ancient Greece did uh, Hippocrates, right, with the Hippoc uh, Hippocratic Oath. I looked through a PDF of this book, De Medicina, a little bit, and Hippocrates is kind of the main focus of a lot of it, or at least this preface. Like, these people get a fleeting mention for their live experimentation, but he did write a lot more about Hipp Hippocrates, Hippocrates, yeah. It's kind of like the idea of biopolitics where, like, back in the day, you know, the biopolitics was like, you will be punished with death. Like, uh, you will be 
punished by suffering. And at some point, there was a little bit more of a societal shift, kind of with the advent of uh, industrialization and capitalism, that, uh, you know, there was a more, like, life-affirming politics or biopolitics where it's like, no, you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail, but we aren't going to kill you. Of course, that's not necessarily true in in the U.S. all the time, but it's a lot more true than it was in the Middle Ages. Yeah, and that's what, you know, that's what they call, you know, the creation of, you know, the modern-day prisons, especially when you look at it, in the, that was uh, considered reform. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so let's move forward to some more modern cases. The, I really wanted to talk about this uh, doctor's riot. It's not exactly in the same vein because it is about experimenting on bodies, but I think it says a lot about uh, experimentation, uh, and it's a pretty interesting story. Um, so... It, it was in 1788, so when the U.S. was, like, still very young, uh, only five years after the War of Independence ended, um, and it was in New York, and doctors and medical students were robbing the graves of black people uh, for medical experimentation. And at that time, about 20% of New York City was black. Most of them were slaves, Um and because of that, they're like low status in society. society. They were buried on the outskirts of town. Hey team, this is a playoff game, but I want you to play just like any other game. Just everyone go out and have fun. And remember, if you win, I take you out for ice cream. If you lose, you drive us to the outskirts of town and leave us there? <laughs> no, Binky. If you lose, I still take you out for ice cream. I'll never get to see the outskirts of town. But the funny thing about that is, if you look on a map of where the graveyard is, it's located in Lower Manhattan. Um, so it's like funny to think of it as like the outskirts of town. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to even imagine New York being that small at that time. I know. Now, now they're buried on Hart Island in New York. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I guess uh, what they, uh, what was it? Not a pauper's grave, but what's the phrase I'm thinking of, Christian? Um, pauper's grave, that sounds right. I I think I've heard that expression. Or a yeah. potter's field. Thank you, that's it, potter's field. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, wow, that's interesting. I didn't even, where is Hart Island in relation to the rest of New York? So it's pretty close to, about, it's, it's, in closer proximity to like Rikers Island, that it's east of it's in the East River. So like north of Queens. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Uh, for context, if people want to know where this used to be, it's the African Burial Ground National Monument, um, which is like basically right by City Hall and Thomas Paine Park. If anyone wants like context clues. About the actual story and riot, though. So, back in the day, there was no legal or normalized method for doctors to get corpses to uh, experiment on. So, one of the head doctors was named Richard Bailey. 
and he trained in England where grave robbing was way more common, and he frequently grave robbed and dissected people's bodies, but I just find the idea that he was trained in England where grave robbing is super common, like, that that was funny to me. Yeah, it's, we, we, we learned, uh, we were still learning. Uh, from our former colonizer. <laughs> yeah, and just the idea that, like, well, why would it be more common in England but not in the U.S.? I mean, I guess, they, you know, it's a smaller country, so they, they start running out of space because they're dead. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, yeah, and so there was an incident one day where one of uh, Dr. Richard Bailey's students, a guy named John Hicks, was working on a removed arm, like a completely cut-off arm of a dead body. And then the student, John Hicks, he uh, waved the arm at some black kids who were walking by and joked to the kid, one of the kid's mom had recently died, and he joked to the kid, This is your mom's arm! Ah. Um, (laughs) Which sounds insane. And then from there, the the boy ran home. He was super upset, as you could imagine, and told his dad. And then they went to the grave of the mom, dug it up, and discovered that her grave had been robbed. So the the doctor had been completely joking. I don't even think he knew the boy's mom had died when he said, This is your mom's arm. Um, but her grave had, in fact, been robbed. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think that uh, that was such a prevalent uh, act that, you know, a random grave could be searched and it's just empty. It was all basically happenstance. Yeah. But this did lead to a riot against the doctors. Um, a lot of the black citizens, especially if they were free because they had more of an opportunity to, but black people in New York rioted against this, and this did help codify uh, some of the very, very early and elementary laws for like experimentation on a body. But, of course, that is not the end of where human experimentation happens. Oh, no, because the more we develop, the worse it gets. Absolutely. But, yeah, I'm because for the audience, to be transparent, um, it was you were the one who suggested that we talk about human experimentation. And I really like that idea. But I had been wanting to talk about that doctor's riot for like a long time before you oh, said really, that. I so. brought it up. That's, I never heard about that before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great to see people fighting back. For sure. Absolutely. And, um, the next person we're going to talk about, um, I had never heard of, but then when I looked into him, I realized that he was in Boardwalk Empire. Uh, his name is Dr. Henry Cotton. Have yeah. you seen Boardwalk Empire? Yeah, I saw the first. I, actually, I don't think I saw the five, but I saw the first. I saw like the first season. Yeah, so he isn't in it very much. He is in the last season. He and basically um 
there's a character named Jillian Darmody. She's kind of a villain, but she's also like one of the most traumatized characters. So you feel you like get where she's coming from, why she's so like screwed up. But she ends up getting sent to a mental asylum. Uh, where their representation of Dr. Henry Cotton is. And in the show, like, one of her friends gets, is in the asylum, gets an involuntary hysterectomy. And then uh, she, Jillian Darmody, um, is like, I'm ready to be released. And he's like, we'll find what's inside you and fix it. And she ends up staying. So, I mean... This reflects what he was known for in real life, which was basically uh, he had this belief, this kind of eccentric belief that when you had mental health issues, it was caused by some sort of inflammation in your body. And he used evidence of like people uh, seeing like delusions or hallucinations when they're running a fever um yeah do you have any thoughts on this idea uh, i could see you know i could see how he would base some of it on it because let me ask you have you ever had a fever so high that you've started that i've hallucinated yeah no i can't say i have i mean i have had like fever dreams however yep, yep. but i've had um, i can remember on two separate occasions having a very very high fever where i started to I started to hallucinate, um, and it's incredibly frightening. And you, you don't, you know, you can't think straight, first of all. So it's I could definitely see how he might jump from that to that. But then when you start getting to it, it, the issue of causation, uh, correlation does not equal causation, which maybe the scientific uh, community wasn't wasn't at that point yet. Yeah, for example, this idea that um, hysteria is caused by having some sort of issue with your uterus and then involuntarily um, removing the person's uterus, thinking that will have any effect on their mental well-being. Well, it'd be interesting to see how many uh, how many patients uh, had you know who were uh, women had their their uterus removed versus how many men were say castrated or something like that yeah absolutely and um because yeah there wasn't a gendered associations with mental illness for men in the same way there were for women exactly i mean you never really heard uh the term hysteria uh and, and melancholy uh melancholy and things like that thrown around men as you would with by by scientists most of them were men large majority yeah some of the other things that he did when he experiment experimented on people is he would remove their teeth that was a big one um and i that would often be like the first step of what he would do and then you know he'd pull out their teeth they'd still have mental health issues and then he'd be like oh well we just have to keep pulling out more parts of them let's take out a kidney <laughs> yes he was really big also on uh removing people's colons so did he invent the colostomy bag then or was that I don't know. I think I think he would do some really bizarre things like 
suit sew people's like anuses directly to their like uh intestines or i don't even know how it worked but i like i don't even know how you remove a colon it seems uh well i guess the colon is the large intestine right I, i'm not really sure yeah the colon is the large intestine. you know it's funny because in the research that i wound up doing uh for what we're talking about in a little bit uh, one one person talked about an experiment he even put under that they had sewn part of a corpse to his back, and this was like in the nineteen in the early nineteen fifties. Wow, that is some legitimate um, human centipede type stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's crazy. So I, I have not watched that movie. I, I know what that movie's about, and I'm like, you know, I th- I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I've only seen the first one. I would see the second two, but just haven't had the opportunity. Oh, that's right. There's three of them, right? Wow. Yeah. And the crazy thing about them is each movie starts with a character watching the movie before it and being inspired <laughs> to make their own human sense. <laughs> oh, man. So it's like, yeah. Not a film about that act well and it gets longer every time (laughs) that's really funny i mean the concept is really funny yeah the third one gets the most um kind of into this topic as well because it's basically about a prison warden who watches the second movie and then thinks oh i can change all these prisoners into a giant human centipede <laughs> god i don't know if i'd really want to be honest that sounds a little extreme <laughs> yeah and i guess one thing i'll say about dr henry cotton compared to a lot of the stuff we're talking about is uh, a lot of these stories revolve on people trying to figure out medical truths by experimenting on people, but for him, it was more like he was almost like fanatically convinced of a crackpot theory and thought he was doing the right thing by acting it out, but he wasn't really trying to learn anything by his experiments. But it all right. I mean, because there's definitely other motives that that we'll see about about testing yeah absolutely i just think he's like unique because like for example like he wasn't trying to learn what happens if you remove a mentally ill person's teeth he thought removing their teeth will make them feel better so it was more like uh it was more an assumption like he was treating it more as like a, a theory than a hypothesis yeah, well, at least based on what I was reading, yeah, he was absolutely convinced that what he was doing worked and tried to evangelize that belief. Wow, even like after the results, obviously didn't, you know, if we had looked at results now of what he had did, then obviously, you know, it would have been completely uh, false. Yeah, and I I think part of it is he did die pretty young, like shortly after he was doing a lot of this stuff so he never really had a chance to get um his comeuppance i guess dead 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 i think we can move on to some more like world war ii stuff but 
I kind of made a conscious effort not to talk about Nazi stuff because mainly because it's just so big that I didn't want to tackle it and I wanted to tackle some like lesser known stuff but we really can't get around this topic without at least mentioning the vast network of human experimentation that Nazis were doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you have any, uh, even though we're not going to go deep into it, do you have any thoughts on, like, unique to Nazi experimentation? I do, actually, because there's two things that, you have two things that came out of Nazi experimentation. One was, there was a, you know, it was that American, uh, well, not Americans, but the American, the U.S. military and the U.S. scientific community, um, before the involvement States in World War II were aware of the experiments that were performing during this. And what happened was there was a rumor that Nazis were trying to split the atom. Well, actually, no, the atom got split. And then the rumor was that once that happened, then the rumor was that the Nazis developed uh, a nuclear bomb. And so that led to the immediate start of Manhattan Project, and the other thing that came that was interesting experimentation was during a trial, it was, I believe, lasted for almost a year, it was a trial of Nazi doctors and scientists at Nuremberg was one of the doctors said that we were basically doing exactly what, you know, we've been, we're doing what, what America's as well. And I think he was like the only person who wasn't sentenced to death and who just was imprisonment as a sentence. And what happened, you had the creation of the Nuremberg Code there, but what, what wound up happening was that the United States completely ignored it. Especially when you get into stuff like the Holmesburg pri- program and the Holmesburg prison. We'll, we'll get more into that in a minute, but that was a pretty flagrant violation of the those conventions uh that the u.s you know signed on to but of course it doesn't mean a whole lot of uh you know all things considered the evil doings of the united states so do you want to talk about i want to talk about unit 731 which was similar in a lot of ways to the nazis uh experimentation program we just don't talk about it in the west as much although i believe it's talked about a lot more in asia but uh they in this unit and similar ones about 580,000 people died from experimentation or from bioweapons made at the facility um over, there were over 3,000 deaths from metal, medical testing in this one facility alone. Uh, they typically died during live dissections. Uh, they would be infected with disease, then dissected. Um, sometimes their limbs would just be cut off to examine like how blood flows out when a limb is cut off. Um, yeah, there really was like... Uh, stuff like removing people's stomachs entirely um, and attaching esophaguses directly to the intestines, which is very human centipede-esque. Um, 
Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? I can get a little more into their bioweapon stuff, too. I, I haven't heard of this. I've never heard of it before. I would, I would definitely be interested in hearing more about the big bioweapon. So they, um, they developed a lot of bioweapons, and the main thing they seem to really focus on is they would breed plague-infested fleas. Then they would fly a, a plane over Chinese cities and just drop as many plague-infested fleas onto the city as they could. Um, they did at least 12 different attacks along these lines against major Chinese cities. Um, and they also dropped bombs yep. filled with cholera um, killing 10,000 people with cholera. And it, the crazy thing about it, it was indiscriminate, too, because they also ended up killing 1,700 Japanese soldiers in the same cholera attack. Um, yeah, and I guess the last thing I want to say about the Unit 731 is, um, right before World War II ended, they were actually plotting a similar type of bioweapon against the U.S., where they were going to drop a bunch of plague-infested fleas on San Diego and then kamikaze the planes. But that was being planned literally just like weeks before they were nuked. So that didn't end up coming to fruition, and it probably realistically wouldn't have, but they were planning something like that. You know, that was actually, it's funny that you mentioned that story, because that was actually going to be, the sequel to Steven Spielberg film 1941, but it bombed so bad at the cinema, or made it. <laughs> Interesting. No, I'm, I'm fine. I... <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? No, 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 it's not true. But that movie did bomb really bad at the box office. That okay. part is true. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I have I have not seen that movie. It's a bad movie. It's the one about Pearl Harbor with Dan Aykroyd, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the one. <laughs> okay. Yes. Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Gary, Murray Hamilton, Mr. Belief, Tim Matheson, Toshiro Mifune. Warren Oates, Robert Stank, Treat Williams. I can assure you, there will be no bombs dropped here. Boy, that was fun! Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures present an 18 production of a Steven Spielberg film. 1941. Yeah, and then, I mean, I think it would be a good time to get into some of these more experiment, um, like, American experiments, because they really, I mean, especially post-war, they really take the cake with this. Anybody want cake? Get that cake in my face! What do you mean what happened? I can't see! I wanted to talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, because that has come, come up a few times recently. I've been hearing people talk about it more, but... It was conducted by U.S. Public Health Service and the CDC. 
um, in collaboration with the historically black college Tuskegee University. They found 600 black sharecroppers. And that's the, that's the really crazy thing about this. They were not even prisoners, which is bad enough. But, I mean, they do it enough that it's like, yeah, it's a little different. They were just regular people. And they were t- told they were being given free federal health care. When in reality, they were just being infected with syphilis. Um, so I could get a little more into it. But what are your thoughts about this story? You know, I, I'd heard some of the basic, heard some of the basics of this. I've been aware of this for years. I did not know. I, I knew that that everybody involved in the study was black. I did not know that they were sharecroppers. But to, to, to think about it, they, they so this was the the federal government reaching out to Tuskegee University for this. And what's interesting is the more you know, it's this is what, the early to, yeah, this is 1932 to 1972. That's, first of all, that's, that's 40 years. And second of all, the fact that it's a, a university, like when you start looking at more and more instances of experimentation, a, a huge amount of them are sponsored by universities. Absolutely. And one of the things about it is, so they had 600 people and 399 of them were given syphilis, 201 were not as like a a testing group. Right. I, what I really wonder is who is the lucky one person who they were going to give syphilis, but then didn't because I don't believe they planned 399. (laughs) And that's such an odd number, that one yet. You have to wonder exactly what happened. That's the thing about what I started noticing about some about a lot of these early experiments is not only is, you know, not only are they completely unethical, but then when you start to look at how these experiments were done and you start to read of stories of, you know, accidents and neglect clumsiness and how these experiments were conducted first place like anything can happen really in this case like it is pretty egregious because they were never informed they had syphilis they were being treated in really ineffective ways and there was a whistleblower for the public health service in um, in San Francisco or Sacramento, somewhere in California, he objected to the experiment. He uh, and told the CDC they should stop throughout the sixties. Uh, but the CDC's response is really telling. They basically said that they weren't going to stop until the experiment was complete, which basically means until all the people die and they had a full autopsy, which is really, I mean, that's just such a uh, insane way of thinking. Like, well, you know, we have to let them die. Although it's interesting because about... We fast forward about 15 years for prisoners who were in experiments. And when that was broken, the story was, was really broken and to the point of investigating uh, the EPA, the 
uh, decided uh, not to reach out to prisoners, but to let the prisoners uh, who, you know, might have, uh, who've gone through, uh, suffered like bad side effects, uh, various experiments, but to let them find the EPA. That was, that, that basically became their stance, which, you know, shows the fact of, oh, you know, let's, let's do an investigation. But when it comes down to it, like, let them be. Yeah, and the only reason they stopped the experiment is because the uh, guy who's complaining about it, or not complaining, that makes it seem trivial, but the guy who (laughs) had a complaint about it, Peter Buxton, he ended up leaking it, and then they quietly stopped the program just because the public knew about it, but it is pretty glaring how much institutions... Uh, stand by these really ethically uh, horrendous stances on human experimentation. Yeah. Well, if it isn't my old friend, Mr. McGregor, with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. And I guess we have kind of been building to this because this is the real, like, it's just a smorgasbord of different types of experimentation, and that was... uh, at Holmesburg Prison in Northeast Philadelphia. Um, And, I mean, they tested for so many things here, from radiation to injecting people with chemicals, like injecting people with the chemicals in Agent Orange. And a lot of it was done, you know, there's a famous quote about it, about how the, like, acres of skin of people when the doc yeah like when the doctor first arrived he's like i saw acres of skin of people i could experiment on so a lot of it was to see like skin reactions to these dangerous chemicals but uh yeah what are your thoughts on uh this so what's interesting about holmesburg is first of all it wasn't a state it was a county institution and they tested so many different things. So you had, first of all, you had the U.S. Army, which uh, was was basically developed, like, you know, as it said, like all kinds of chemicals and everything for military. And you had something that they were working on that was completely separate from MK Ultra, which is called Project Austin, which lasted over 10 years, where basically you had more than a dozen, like, mind-altering drugs tested on inmates. And... The thing is, is that, you know, it's a lot of inmates had really negative side effects in the test. And what happened was later in life, they just no longer trust the doctors like at all. Right. Um, one of the things that the army was test LSD in, in high doses on inmates and in trailers. But one of the other chemical compounds that they tested was something called EA3167, which it's a really dangerous drug that's a delirium that can last, you know, the effects of which last for days and like often weeks. Right. I mean, people who take like high doses, it takes them like up to six months to be able to fully recover, like intellectually, like to be able to, to do the same things that they were before. Any sort of like critical thinking and stuff like that. Like, so instead of testing this compound on soldiers, though, as, as, as part of Project Often, what they did was they reached out to UPenn, which is the, uh, another university. And, um, yeah, Dr. Albert Kligman to to run different to what basically he had started off as like a dermatologist working for for different you know, companies testing things that would go to market 
you know, like everything from, from creams to the stuff that would, that would require, you know, over the counter stuff, the stuff that would require uh, a prescription. And the reason that the U S army chemical Corps went to Holmesburg to test this EA three, one, six, seven is they wanted to have test subjects in their opinion, who could be in one place with little outside change that they can monitor for months because back at, what was it, back at the Edgewood Arsenal facility in Maryland, which was where they were doing all their tests on soldiers, you know, you had, you know, shoulder, soldiers, that's the nature of their work, like you know, being moved from place to place. So you had all kinds of different tests, you know, and they would go from, you know, uh, soaking, soaking your hand in, in different types of chemical agency, the skin would harden. A lot of this stuff was developed with the idea of, of warfare, um, but you also had, you know, you had stuff that would just get dropped into your eyes. You'd get, uh, they, you know, they'd do like rub stuff on a patch of skin and then put like a bandage over it. So there'd be all kinds of different reactions from, you know, just like a little bit of irritation on the skin to, you know, of course, uh, to the person dying. Um, one of the reasons, now this happened from 1951 to 1974. And from what I read, one of the reasons that many black prisoners stopped volunteering was actually because of the influence of the nation of Islam and the rise of uh, black militancy telling, you know, black prisoners, uh, hey, these experiments are exploitation. Do not sign up for them. But the thing was, is that what was happening was that you had a lot of jobs for inmates, which paid dog shit wages still do to this day, um, disappearing. And then you had Albert Kligman and his team of medical students all looking, of uh, medical residents, people like fresh out of college, looking to make a name for themselves, uh, being given, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in grant money. And then them turning around and saying like, oh, we'll pay you $100 for this study, which is, you know, in a prison economy is like a million dollars. In a prison economy in 1965 is like, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's a ton of money. And, you know, it's, a lot of this money was being used for people to raise bail money, uh, people to pay for lawyers, to pay for basic things in commissary. I do have actually a, yeah, I have a quote here. The uh, state legislator from Pennsylvania named Lucian Blackwell he talked to an inmate in a study where, you know, this is one of the lesser ones, comparatively speaking, where a drug was being dropped into his eyes. And he asked, he asked him, why would you risk injuring your eyes? And the response was, well, they don't give you soap or a comb, you know, like basic things like that, or to send money home to, to your wives and kids. Maybe, you know, if your wife isn't, isn't working while you're locked up. You know, with, with Dr. Albert Kligman, saw was his quote and there's a book that came out about this that i read for this called it was based on this quote and he said all i saw before me were acres of skin it was like a farmer's fertile field what's your thoughts on that quote it seems like he sees it like he was creating commodities almost like the when i think of like acres of skin in a farm it's like uh, i am extracting value out of this land like uh it's a very um yeah commodifying perspective on a human being 
Yeah, it's not 40 acres in a mule. It's it's uh, six feet space under the earth. This is really interesting, and I I do want to touch on the idea that it was like not like a federal prison in, in the sense that like I, I think some people like. It was a county prison. Sometimes people have this idea that uh, these things operate separately. You know, only a fe- like a federal prison would do this. But it's like, well, if the U.S. military comes knocking with all this money, and then the university wants to dump you all this money, it it shows that like this, and you're just like a county prison system. And, I mean, really, Philadelphia County has the same borders as the city of Philadelphia. So, I I just feel like you have to think of it as, like, a systemic type of thing where they will always... The money always leads to doing this type of exploitation. No matter what context, from, like, uh, big top-down operations like the Nazis or Imperial Japan to just, like somewhere like Tuskegee or Northeast Philly. Yeah, because, I mean, the thing was is that, like, the prison prison wasn't even given money for this. What they were told they were getting in exchange for this was a a more controllable controllable population. Wow. But basically what was happening was it completely changed the economics because you had a lot of, you know... there, there, the, the thing is, what it boils down to is, is informed consent in that environment is completely impossible. Especially if you're saying that it's, 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 you know, you're looking for volunteers. That's what they always say. You know, this is a voluntary, you know, it's a voluntary experiment. You're a voluntary participant. They give them paperwork to sign, of course, which they think puts them clear. So, yeah, I mean, you had companies like Colgate, you know, testing space. You had Johnson & Johnson doing a lot of studies there as well. But one thing that stood out that's interesting, among – did you watch Mr. Rogers when you were a kid, Christian? Yeah, I did. Okay. So among the companies and groups that tested on prisoners was a cosmetics company called the Helena Rubenstein Company, which you might know from the Helena Rubenstein Foundation a sponsor of, a longtime sponsor for years of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, CBS. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that that is pretty crazy. Um, before we move on from this, I do want to go back to a detail that caught my eye. This, um, this drug called EA3167. Do you know uh, what they were testing it for? Like, was it going to be used as some type of mind control or population control or warfare. Mind or... control, yeah. Yeah, they, they wanted, they were trying to develop, like, a non-lethal uh, incapacitating agent, like, uh, uh, I believe for uh, use for, like, interrogation like that. And it basically just wiped up, wiped out their minds so bad that it wouldn't even be effective. Yeah, I mean, because it's, yeah, it's, uh, I'm looking at Wikipedia, it's a, uh, right now, it's an effective dose when administered by ejection as little as, uh, 0.2 uh, milligrams for an 80 kilo, uh, kilogram person, a uh, duration of five to 10 days. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. It, yeah, they developed a couple of... Um, yeah, because uh, the Soviets were also working. A lot of this, they say, claim came from uh, the Cold War. There's actually there's a book on this specifically called uh, Chemical Warfare Secrets Almost Forgotten. And it's about medical testing of army with uh, chemical agents. Yeah, and I mean, that just reminds me also of the idea, like, Carl Schmidt, he was, like, you know, like, the Nazi philosopher or whatever, but he had the idea of the state of exception where any state will lapse into authoritarianism or it does because they can always have an exception in the sense of like, well, the Soviets are doing it and we have to keep up is the, the exception to the rule that they uh, supposedly don't experiment on people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there will always be a, an excuse for an exception like that. Oh, always in the name of in the name of war or in the name of profit. Absolutely. Because, like, one thing that happened. One thing that happened with uh, with Kligman was first of all he you know he got in a lot of trouble towards the end, but it took decades and a lot of uh, suits that were filed as well. I mean, he did get censured by the. But basically what wound up happening with Kligman was that he just worked on something that exploded in terms of acting called uh, uh, Retin-A. I, I know it's spelled like R-E-T-I-N-A, so I don't want to enough to confuse it with the part of the I. But he wanted to just, like, he just made, like, he had different companies, first of all. He had, I think he had, like, two or three companies to test chemicals. And... He just he made like hundreds of thousands of dollars just trying to rush things to, to market. And then what he got to wind up getting in trouble for with the FDA was basically like they would test a product or something and say, okay, this doesn't work for this, right? This, um, or the FDA says you cannot, you know, you can only say that it works for this. And then they'll go, they'll find like back ways to try and market it. What they call, I think, something like off-label of saying, oh, this also, you could use this for this. And you could use this for this, but but legally they can't like say that you know like just flat out. They got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but yes. they got a lot of trouble for that. But you know, it's in terms of um, when this was exposed. And first of all, you you did have uh, Ted Kennedy did uh, did ask uh, they did have investigations about this in the early seven, which I know that you um, I believe you brought up before or no. You, yeah, you brought up, uh, yeah, Ted Kennedy um, uh, held the, the Senate investigation about Tuskegee, and then they also started to investigate uh, Holmesburg. And he asked them, he's like, why did you pick prisoners? And they said, yeah, because it's cheaper. Yeah. Although, and the, the thing is, like, even with the Tuskegee experiment, I mean, you wonder if it really is cheaper because they just found people in what they perceived to be the backwoods of the deep south and they were all black you know like i wonder i but i guess it is cheaper on with prisoners in the sense that you can um extort them for things as well and really basic things that people outside of prison don't need to be extorted for yeah exactly i mean yeah because again if you look at the uh the economy of a prison 
in terms of, of wages and what things really cost for somebody living there versus somebody in the free world. All right, Nick, don't panic. Think back to med school. Seriously, baby, I can prescribe anything I want. I know I'm supposed to cut something, but what? And where? I wanted to talk about this, another incident of kind of similar in Sweden in a place called Vipholm. And we'll talk about one in the U.S. as well that I feel like are comparable in a lot of ways. But in some ways, I do think the Swedish example is a little bit unique, but I'll get into it. Um... Basically, the National Dental Service of Sweden was created before World War II. There was a huge dental hygiene issue in Sweden, and they suspected that sugar was causing these dental issues, and they just weren't sure yet. Um, So, Vipholm was the largest asylum in Sweden, uh, and it was chosen for the dental experiment They fed the inmates a ton of sugar candy sweets uh, to see how they affected their teeth, like if they cause cavities. And the study concluded that sugar does in fact cause cavities. But the, the other detail about this that's not as important as the fact they were experimenting on people, but it goes to show how profit motivated a lot of experimentation is, is that... The candy industry was donating a ton of candy to the research, and when they learned that the conclusion was that sugar causes cavities, they tried to stop the study from being published. So, uh, the study itself, you know, force-feeding sweets to mentally ill people, um, made them look really bad, of course, but they also ended up being perceived as totally indebted and beholden to the candy industry. Um, so before we talk about a similar uh, instance in the U.S., Willowbrook, what do you think about this story? I mean, it's a huge conflict of interest, obviously. And what sucks about this is that you have, since the National Dental Service said, yeah, sure. We'll we'll take we'll take all this candy, you know, uh, ratis, you know, for our study. Is once once that's revealed, of course, you're going to have people who are going to say, "Well, why should we trust you?" Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, maybe I'll save my comparisons till after we talk about Willowbrook because I feel like that'll help illuminate my thoughts on this place. But I mean, obviously, it's terrible. Um, but Willowbrook in the U.S. is, uh, extremely terrible. It was open on Staten Island from 1947 to 1987. It was a massive asylum built for 4,000, but very shortly had 6,000 people living there. And Bobby Kennedy, not Ted this time, he toured it and said, I have a quote, he said the patients were, quote, living in filth and dirt, their clothings in rag, their clothing in rags, 
in rooms less comfortable and cheerful than the cages in which we put animals in the zoo. And I guess we'll get into the experimentation here, but the comparison I wanted to make is, you know, in Sweden, they picked a mental asylum for really bad reasons. They just are disregarding the people who stay there. But at the same time, it's like they were testing a very specific thing um, that is not nearly as egregious as, um, you know, boiling people's skin with chemicals. Or Well, I, I don't want to say it's better or worse. That's a little grotesque. But, you know, it, it. whereas the one in the U.S., I mean, they were just living in basically prison or worse places already you know there is there does seem like a little difference in the approach yeah the u.s definitely has um uh extended the idea of of expendability yeah absolutely but so in the first decade of willowbrook operating they noticed a really high amount of the patients had hepatitis a and i i just wanted to do a little sidetrack on this like i always hear about hepatitis c that's the one we most often hear about um and that transfers through blood and you know i know about this most because the wrestler the pro wrestler abdullah the butcher he had to pay damages to an indie wrestler because he was like he had hepatitis and knowingly was still, like, blading and cutting his foreheads and sharing blades with other people, spreading it, um, which is a really terrible thing, but um, that's that's different than hepatitis A. Did you know about that, by the way? I did not, no. Yeah, I mean, that's the most, I, that's how I learned the most about any type of hepatitis, was hearing about that. In fact, um... Oh, butcher is that apparently has a great barbecue restaurant or did in atlanta <laughs> i've heard that uh, let me see if it's yeah. still open i would love it it looks like it may have closed yep he has officially closed abdullah the butcher's house of ribs and chinese food yeah <laughs> um but yeah so the way hepatitis A spreads is basically through poop, like similar to typhoid. So the most commonly spread way is if you have food or drink prepared by someone who, with hepatitis A, who has their poop on their hands. Ooh, I knew somebody that had hepatitis A. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> It's, like, gross to think about, but so at that time, they didn't know how hepatitis A was spread, and they kind of suspected it was through poop, so they began contaminating new patients' foods with hepatitis-infected poop to determine if that was actually how hepatitis was spread. Awful. And their justification is basically like, well, a lot of these people already had hepatitis and they were probably going to catch it anyway, but they basically guaranteed that every single person who came in, one of the first things they did was eat this, like, 
poop infested food to make sure they got it. They're like, oh, it's spread by shit? Hmm, let's see. Here, eat this. Yep, it's spread by shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do you have any more thoughts on that? Well, you know, I wanted to bring up a, a counter, a New, a New England um, sibling to Willowbrook, and that is the Fernald State School, which was institution for, you know, it was in a, founded in 1848. It's, it was the oldest one states. And what they wound up doing was they wound up tricking, um, they wound up tricking developmentally disabled kids, you know, saying, oh, like, you know, join our science club. And what they did was they fed them oatmeal with mate, with uh, milk that was laced with uh, radioisotopes. And among the sponsors of this was, well, first of all, it was a joint study with Harvard and MIT. And among a, one of the sponsors of this project was none other than Quaker Oats. And the place is, is what it renamed it to the Walter E. Fernald Development, right? But the thing is, is that, you know, Fernald, uh, Walter Fernald was a eugenics proponent who was the, the third superintendent of the Fernald uh, and the place was finally completely closed in 2014. So, I mean, that place still had uh, residents years beyond after after Willowbrook was closed. Maybe we don't think about now um, as much because he's not he's not as popular now. Is Geraldo Rivera? Geraldo Rivera was a reporter working for WABC, and he more or less launched his career by doing a multi-part expose on Willowbrook. But what's interesting is that he was, you know, he acted like he was, he was the first person to do so, but really the first person was, of course, a woman named Jane Curtin, spelled with a K, not the SNL actress, uh, who reported on conditions there in the mid sixties, years before people didn't really pay much attention to it. Yeah, so I have a question. Maybe you know the answer is so when they were feeding them the oatmeal, oatmeal with radio or what was it, radioisotopes? Yeah. It was what milk. What is a radioisotope and what is the effect? Oh, uh, let me see. I thought I. Oh, that doesn't help. Uh, radioactive isotope. Oh, right, so it's an atom that has excess nuclear energy. Making it okay. Un- oh, you know what they use is apparently. Oh, you know where where they are in. Uh, they use them actually in smoke. Smoke detectors. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I'm assuming they use them for like nuclear power plants or something yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, well, here, it, it, when people are exposed to radioisotopes, radiation poison, yeah, I mean, you're looking at just, like, destroying, like, t- healthy tissue, um, and it ranges anything from, like, you know, irritated skin, hair loss, to really bad, um, and prolonged exposure, as we saw with numerous people. So it's it's kind of what you'd, you'd think as a, a typical example of being, like, exposed to radioactivity. Exactly, yeah. And remember, if you're not sure about something, rub it against a piece of paper. 
If the paper turns clear, it's your window to weight gain. So I suppose those are all the cases. I mean, we could talk about uh, a million other stuff, really. But those are all the cases I kind of prepared for. Um, I know there was, uh, you wanted to talk about the Belmont report. Um, do you, yeah, can you tell me about that? Absolutely. Okay, so if you fast forward a couple of years, um, yeah, Holmesburg was closed. And what happens is a couple of years later, now, as, yeah, as a result of Ted Kennedy's congressional hearings in 1974, Nixon signed it to law, the National Research Act. And one of the things that happens with the National Research Act is it formed something, it was formed like the first public governing body that would form and decide on bioethic policy within the United States. And I recall the National Committee for the Protection of the Subject of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. Uh, one of their goals is basically to define what conformed consent for each research setting is. And, you know, they, they you go through a couple years after, after they, they formed, and, you know, they first went through, like, research on fetuses, research on prisoners, and then research on children. Um, one of the things I did not see them do was, was research the elderly, but I'm not sure. Um, sure, there's probably cases. But the report itself was released by the committee, and what it basically was was like a summary of ethical principles and guidelines. The three basic being respect for persons, uh, beneficence, and justice. And this has evolved over time, and it's still the basis for like the U.S. Department of Health and Human Service, you know, regulation for like protection. And I mean, a lot has been done over the years terms of overview and regulation do college you know the, the joke i remember now do you remember there was a movie actually about uh college students uh doing uh experimentation like medical experimentation there is a movie with david spade about this actually let me find it um it's it's a really really horrible movie is it newer no it, it's a penelope spirits of course and it's a uh, uh, Marlon Wayne is the student who uh, <laughs> decides to take some like uh, drug or something that like you know makes his senses like go into overdrive. And then oh, Matthew Lillard is in it before um, SLC Punk, and he plays like a straight punk rocker. <laughs> who's well, that, that's crazy. And he has a hockey scout. It's a really really bad movie, but it just. I had to bring up something like a little bit. Lighter. Wait, what's it called? It's called Senseless. It's a really terrible <laughs> film. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but like basically, like you know, like yeah, he tries to get like uh, he tries to get like a one up. He wants to like make extra money to support his family, and he's also trying to get a one up to win this like Wall Street job from from David Spade. But then, of course, he gets all his like bad side effects and everything. <laughs> it's an interesting movie, I'm sure, like, if you eat, like, some, some magic mushrooms, in terms of, like, what happens is, like, smell and, like, taste, sight and everything, it's kind of cool for that. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, do you have any more thoughts before we go? No, that's it. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. Anything you want to plug before I let you go? Yeah, um, so I have a podcast called Untitled Charles Grodin Pro, uh, Podcast. Rest in peace, uh, King. Um, Charles Grodin passed away, but a life 
well lived. Um, it's a, a, a Patre- it's available over Patreon, um, uh, a podcast called The Franchise, which if you're into movies about uh, franchises, my podcast is more of like a parody of Movie Bro podcast. And we try to raise money for uh, from our listeners for local mutual aid in Brooklyn. Awesome. If you're a fan of movie movie franchises, the franchise on their Patreon, and then I think it's like five dollars. And then you can hear my podcast. Like, one. Um, thank well, you so much for having me on the show, Christian. Like, I've been looking forward to this. For yeah, of course. I'm glad to have you on. Uh, thank you for being I, on. Um, for the listener, I will say you can follow the show, Society Show, on Twitter at Society underscore show. You can follow me personally at Christian is Cool. Is spelled I-Z, Christian I-Z Cool. You can also email the podcast at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. If you email in with a topic, I, and it's not a bad topic, I probably will talk about it. And you can also leave a voicemail that if you want it played on the show, if you call 971-238-4138. And if you missed any of those details, just go to societyshow.net. Eric, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Follow me on Twitter at wait, W-A-I-T-Y-O-U-R-A-R-O-B-O-T. Wait, you're a robot. Unlocked, but I'll, I'll uh, definitely follow. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, and uh, have a good evening. Thanks. You too, Christian. Bye. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. Dr. Nick, this malpractice committee has received a few complaints against you. Of the 160 gravest charges, the most troubling are performing major operations with a knife and fork from a seafood restaurant. But I clean them with my napkin. Misuse of the cadavers. I get here earlier when I drive in the carpool lane. The knee bones connected to the something. The something's connected to the red thing. The red thing's connected to my wristwatch. Be creative. Instead of making sandwiches with bread, use Pop-Tarts. Bye-bye, everybody!